From New York, this is Democracy Now! We are all here to charge this administration with genocide! Israel and the United States are jointly complicit in the ongoing Nakba in Palestine. Together, they are rending international law worthless and irrelevant. A massive crowd rallied in Washington, D.C. Saturday for the largest pro-Palestinian rights march in U.S. history, calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza as the death toll in Gaza and the West Bank nears 10,000 over the past month. We'll hear voices from the protests, including Palestinian lawyer and activist Noura Arakat and the hip-hop star Macklemore. We lead with our hearts, we speak the truth, we shut down the propaganda, and we march forward. Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Plus, as Israel rejects growing calls for a ceasefire, we'll look at Secretary of State Tony Blinken's tour of the Middle East, from Tel Aviv to Ramallah, from Jordan to Iraq and now Turkey. We'll speak with University of Maryland Professor Shibli Talhami. We'll also talk to Dr. Alice Rothschild, retired OBGYN, who's long worked in Palestine. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's military says its forces have fully encircled Gaza City as it intensifies its bombardment of the besieged Palestinian territory. Israeli leaders say the ground offensive has split the territory in two, a South Gaza and a North Gaza. On Sunday, Gaza was once again plunged into a total communications blackout, the third such outage since October 7th. Eighteen U.N. and other prominent aid groups issued a rare joint statement calling for an immediate ceasefire after 30 days of incessant and indiscriminate attacks. Enough is enough, the groups declared. The death toll in Gaza is nearing 10,000. Nearly half the victims are children. The U.N. says 88 of its staff have been killed, the highest number of U.N. deaths ever in a single conflict. At least 45 people were killed in an Israeli airstrike on the al-Maghazi refugee camps. Saturday. It's located in the southern area. Israel told Palestinians they should seek shelter in to escape bombing up north. Photojournalist Mohammed Al-Alul lost four of his five children and other family members in the attack on Al-Maghazi. The news began to trickle in slowly, telling me your daughter is wounded, your son is wounded. I got in touch with colleagues at Al-Aqsa Hospital. I found my four children martyred, my only daughter, my oldest son, Ahmed, the kind one. May God have mercy on him. Kanan, may God have mercy on him. Kayas, may God have mercy on him. Israel continues to strike schools and health facilities in Gaza, including the areas around Al-Quds and Al-Shifa hospitals. Fresh strikes also took aim at the densely populated Jabalia refugee camp Saturday following last week's massacre. I was standing here when three bombings happened. I carried a body, another decapitated body with my own hands. 
Where should I go? They've hit the shelters. Those who are on the streets in Gaza are hit while walking. Since when has it become normal to strike shelters? This is so unfair. You walk on the street, you're hit. And while you're carrying the body to bury, they strike us. Where is the United Nations in this? Never in any war were shelters hit. Around 1,100 people have left the Gaza Strip since the Rafah crossing with Egypt was briefly opened. Evacuations have been suspended since Saturday, but Egyptian, U.S. and Qatari officials said they hoped they would resume later today. Meanwhile, reports emerged Friday that Israel was not allowing citizens of Brazil and Ireland to leave the war-torn enclave as retaliation for their government's criticism of Israel and calls for a ceasefire. This is an 11-year-old American-Palestinian girl, Farah Saluha, who was forced to leave her father behind in Gaza as she traveled to Egypt with her mother and siblings. I'm very sad because I love all my friends, especially, uh, especially in school, because they, I was always uh, happy with them, and I miss being happy instead of just worrying about my safety all the time. The start of the war was very hard. Because I was sick and we had to sleep, I couldn't sleep in my room. But then they they told me to get out of Gaza, and I didn't want to leave Gaza. So, but so I had to go to Rafah and and sleep and sleep in different places. And we kept on moving and moving, and I didn't want this. There was there was no electricity and no internet and uh, and no water. Lebanon's caretaker prime minister, Najib Mekati, said his government will file a complaint with the U.N. Security Council after an Israeli drone attack Sunday evening killed a grandmother and three children. The strike came as Israeli and Hezbollah forces have been engaged in skirmishes along the border over the past month. Hezbollah fired rockets into northern Israel in response. The group has vowed to retaliate against Israel if it kills civilians in Lebanon. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Ankara for talks with Turkey's foreign minister about Israel's assault on the Gaza Strip. Ahead of Blinken's arrival, Turkish police fired tear gas and water cannons at to disperse thousands of protesters who'd marched on an air base housing U.S. troops. On Saturday, Turkey recalled its ambassador to Israel after condemning the, quote, unfolding humanitarian tragedy in Gaza, unquote. On Sunday, Blinken made a surprise trip to Baghdad for talks with Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani. That followed Blinken's unscheduled meeting earlier in the day with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in the the occupied West Bank city of Ramallah. Blinken rejected Abbas's demand for a ceasefire in Gaza. On Saturday, Blinken joined a summit of Arab leaders in Jordan, all of whom condemned Israel's assault and demanded a ceasefire. Meanwhile, CIA director William Burns arrived in Israel Sunday for talks with Israeli leaders and intelligence officials, and then will travel through the Middle East. Massive protests demanding a ceasefire in Gaza and an end to the Israeli occupation of Palestine took place across the globe again over the weekend. Drone footage shows an endless sea of protesters in major cities, including Jakarta, Indonesia, Paris, London, Berlin, Athens. Here in the United States, over 100,000 people took part in protests in the streets of Washington, D.C. Saturday in the largest ever U.S. demonstration 
Administration for Palestinian Rights. Speakers addressed the crowd from a stage in Freedom Plaza, which they dubbed Gaza Plaza, before marching toward the White House. This is Hatem Bazian, a Palestinian professor at UC Berkeley. Palestine was the last settler colonial project to be commissioned by these Western hypocritical countries. And as we celebrated the release of Nelson Mandela and the end of apartheid, the last settler colony in Africa, we will celebrate the end of settler colonialism in Palestine. Later in the broadcast, we'll hear more voices from the historic pro-Palestinian rights protest in D.C. One day before Saturday's mass protest, 52 activists were arrested on Capitol Hill as they occupied the offices of Democratic senators, demanding the lawmakers back an immediate Gaza ceasefire. The senators included Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey. In Rhode Island, the Providence City Council has passed a resolution calling for a ceasefire and for the Biden administration to send humanitarian aid to Gaza. This came just days after City Councilor Miguel Sanchez was fired from his job at the Rhode Island governor's office for speaking out against the Israeli assault in Gaza. Meanwhile, New York Times Magazine's award-winning writer Jasmine Hughes resigned after signing an open letter condemning Israel's genocide in Gaza. The move constituted a violation of newsroom policy. New York Times contributor Jamie Lauren Kalis, who describes himself as a religiously observant Jew, also left The New York Times after signing on to the letter. In California, dozens of protesters demanding a ceasefire in Gaza gathered at the Port of Oakland Friday, blocking the departure of a U.S. military supply vessel. Organizers say the ship was holding weapons bound for Israel. Protesters occupied the berth, while others locked themselves to ladders on the side of the ship. After nine hours of occupation, police moved in to forcefully remove protesters from the vessel, and the ship began to leave the port as people shouted, shame on you. Organizers in Oakland said they've coordinated with partners in Tacoma, Washington, the vessel's expected next stop for another peaceful blockade Monday. Meanwhile, during a Palestinian solidarity action in Puerto Rico Saturday, a protester climbed a flagpole in front of the capital in San Juan to remove the U.S. flag and replace it with a Palestinian flag. An Arab Muslim student at Stanford University is calling on people to spread compassion and kindness after he was struck Friday in a hit-and-run that's being investigated as a hate crime. The driver shouted, F.U. people, as he drove away. Abdul Wahab Omira released a statement from his hospital bed saying, quote, this ordeal has solidified my resolve to advocate for love, understanding and inclusivity, he said. In Nepal, a 5.6-magnitude quake struck the far western Karnali province Friday, killing at least 157 people. It was Nepal's worst earthquake since its 2015 disaster, which killed 9,000 people. Rescue workers had to clear roads blocked by landslides and debris to reach the mountainous villages at the epicenter of the quake. An estimated 5,000 houses were destroyed or damaged. Survivors say they're still waiting for help three days after the disaster. 
We have nothing left. Dust from the debris are entering into our noses and mouths. We can't see properly due to the dust. We have dust on our ears. What to do? We are in a very bad situation. The children are complaining that they're hungry. We don't have a place to stay, nor food to eat or clothes to wear. No one is looking after us. In India, officials have extended elementary school closures in the capital, New Delhi, through the end of the week as New Delhi of 33 million chokes under a gray, thick gray haze of air pollution. The hazardous air conditions are due to crops double burning in neighboring farm states, a drop in temperatures and winds. Residents are battling a myriad of health problems due to the smog. The situation is very bad here. There is a lot of coughing, colds, and burning sensation in the eyes. The kids are also sick. We cannot take the kids out, and we also step out far less than we used to because of this pollution. And in the Philippines, 57-year-old radio journalist Juan Humalon was shot dead during a live broadcast in his home studio Sunday by an attacker who fled on a motorcycle with an accomplice. Viewers watching the program on Facebook witnessed the brazen murder in real time, though the shooter was not on camera. Police say they're investigating whether the killing was related to Humalon's work as a journalist. He was the 199th media worker to be killed in the Philippines since the dictator Ferdinand Marcos, the father of the current president was toppled in a popular uprising in 1986. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The heads of 18 United Nations agencies and NGOs have issued a rare joint statement calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, expressing shock and horror at Israel's month-long bombardment. The statement read in part, quote, We need an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. It's been 30 days. Enough is enough. This must stop now. Unquote. But Israel's rejecting all calls for a ceasefire, even a humanitarian pause, as the Palestinian death toll in Gaza and the West Bank nears 10,000 over this past month. U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken's continuing a trip throughout the Middle East. Blinken's in Turkey today after stops in Tel Aviv, Ramallah, Jordan and Iraq. This comes as fears grow of a broader regional war. On Sunday, an Israeli strike on a car in southern Lebanon killed three children and their grandmother. The strike came two days after Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah gave a major address. We begin today's show looking at diplomatic efforts to halt Israel's bombardment, which began October 7th after Hamas launched a surprise attack that Israel says killed over 1,400 people. Israel says about 240 hostages were taken during the attack. We're joined by Shibli Talhami, professor of peace and development at the University of Maryland, also a senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy. He's co-editor of the book, The One State Reality, What is Israel-Palestine? Professor Talhami, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you start off by talking about this Horrifying landmark moment. Nearly 10,000 Palestinians have been killed. Mass protests around the world. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken uh, going to Tel Aviv, then surprising people by going to Ramallah, went to Jordan, met with Arab leaders, then on to Iraq. The significance of that now in Turkey. What you feel needs to happen now? Well, first of all, in terms of this moment, which you asked about, obviously, um, anyone with a heart, it doesn't matter whether you are Jewish or Arab or, or Christian or whatever, uh, the scale of horror is just unbearable. And we haven't seen that in uh, 
uh, certainly years, but perhaps decades uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian uh, arena. But I think uh, it's even bigger than that. It's beyond the, the humanitarian heartache that we all witness uh, every day. And we have witnessed also in the attack on, on Israel. Um, I think it is, um, you know, those people who think this is just another cycle of violence are really not captured in the moment. This is a paradigm-changing moment. Uh, this is a moment that's likely to really shift the way we think about the conflict. It is likely to shift the way people in the region think about the United States because of its role. Uh, and I think, therefore, even people who are thinking about, let's think about the morning after, are not coming to grips with what a morning after might look like if there is a morning after. Uh, so I think it's a moment uh, that is bigger than most of us realize, because those moments in history usually are evaluated after the fact, not while you're going through it. We know it's horrendous, but we're not grasping the implications. Let's talk about President Biden right now. Um, uh, polls show that um, before all of this took place, I mean, when he was elected, he had something like 59 percent of the Arab American vote. We're now talking about something like 17 percent. And we're talking about key states like Michigan, um, Dearborn, for example. Can you talk about the significance of this nationally and then globally where he stands um, in the Arab world? Yeah, I think nationally, obviously, we, we already see, um, uh, uh, you know, implications of this. We see it in various polling that has been, been taken. Um, the, his popularity had dropped uh, among Democrats, coincidentally, around the same time uh, that this war um, uh, started and, and is going on. And we don't know that that's directly related to it, but it perhaps it is. Uh, but I have um, conducted a poll uh, through our University of Maryland critical issues poll uh, two weeks after the war. And there was a bump in the sympathy for Israel. But when it comes to the Biden administration's evaluation, more people said he was too pro-Israel than said he is uh, 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 too pro-Palestinian. And obviously, in terms of the implications for voting, we ask, are you more likely to vote uh, for uh, President Biden because of his stance on the Israeli-Palestinian issue? We have far more people saying they're less likely to vote for him than more likely to vote for him. So it has implications way beyond Arab and Muslim Americans because our poll cannot possibly capture uh, Arab and Muslim Americans in, uh, in, in the sample. Uh, but we do know that in the sample, in, in based on, uh, you know, uh, reporting and other polls that have been done, uh, Arab and Muslim Americans are extremely frustrated. I know definitely that some of the Arab American leaders have conveyed to the Secretary of State directly that the president is likely to lose Michigan because of his stance. So I think the president, um, uh, I, my own view is this war is going to hurt him. But globally, it's also going to hurt him a lot uh, because I think people can't, uh, people understood his support for Israel after the horrific Hamas attack. What they can't understand uh, is his inability uh, to condemn the actions that have resulted in such mass destruction and killing uh, in Gaza uh, and um, his, um, you know, seeming complicity in that. And that's that's really something that goes against um, the, um, uh, you know, the, the, with, after the uh, Soviet, uh, uh, sorry, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, we know that he tried to defend uh, a liberal, the, the notion of a liberal and international order, and certainly a, a um, uh, you know, a, 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 a 
rules-based international order uh, and uh, opposed in principle uh, targeting civilians or recklessly endangering them and, and war crimes. And what we see, he's not able to do that uh, with regard to Gaza. I think this is going to undermine his uh, standing globally, not just uh, in the in the Middle East, not just in the global south, but beyond. You also said in a recent interview there's a level of shock you haven't seen, even during the Iraq war, that you'd bet Biden today might even supersede Benjamin Netanyahu as the most disliked leader in the Arab world, Professor Talhami. Uh, yes. And, and as you know, you know, I have, um, you know, I, I was I took a position um, against the Iraq war um, uh, in, in 2002 uh, when people were talking about it uh, to the point that um, I helped organize uh, a uh, an ad for International Relations Scholar in the New York Times, September 2002, saying the Iraq war is not in America's national interest. Uh, it was hard for us to break through an anti-war message through the, uh, the regular media. Uh, and at that time, I also conducted a poll in the, in the Arab world that showed that uh, George W. Bush had become even less popular in the Arab world than then hardline uh, Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. And I bet the same is taking place at the moment. This is a moment, as I said, it's a paradigm shifting moment. And I think that um, it's going to be very hard for Biden to recover from it. It's very hard for people to listen to him when he's speaking about a promise of peace or a promise of two states. They had not trusted him before this in the Arab world, the public opinion I'm talking about. And I think after this stance, it's going to be impossible. Shibli Tohami, we want to thank you so much for being with us, professor of peace and development at the University of Maryland, also senior fellow at the Center for Middle East Policy, co-editor of the book, The One State Reality, What is Israel-Palestine? Coming up, a massive crowd rallies in Washington, D.C., for the largest pro-Palestinian march in U.S. history, calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Stay with us. Window by Samaya Khan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As the health ministry in Gaza says the death toll from Israel's bombardment of Gaza for the last month uh, since October 7th, when Hamas attacked has reached nearly 10,000 Palestinians. People took to the streets around the world this weekend to call for a ceasefire. They marched in Paris, in London, in Jakarta, Indonesia, in Milan, Italy, in Dakar, Senegal, in Athens, Greece, in San Francisco, in Turkey, and more. On Saturday in Washington, D.C., tens of thousands, perhaps 100,000, organizers say as many as 300,000 people, march from Freedom Plaza, which they dubbed Gaza Plaza, to the White House in the largest pro-Palestinian demonstration in U.S. history. Democracy Now! was there. Democracy Now! producers Messiah Rhodes and Maria Terracena spoke with some of the protesters. Free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! 
Malkawi, I'm here to support stopping the war in Gaza now. How far did you travel to get here and what will you say to Joe Biden who's here right now? I traveled nine hours from Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky. Joe Biden, stop. Please stop the war. No more war. My name is Omar Al-Qadi. Uh, we traveled from Charlotte, North Carolina. It's absolutely unbelievable what's going on in uh, Palestine, Ireland. Uh, how many more children need to die? How does it feel to see all the support here right now? Alhamdulillah. Well, alhamdulillah. It's very, very nice. We have a lot of people here today. There's over maybe 100,000 people here in support of Palestine. And that shows that the crimes of Israel are coming out. Right? They're losing the media war at the end of the day. Um, a lot of people are being complacent with what's going on in Israel. And they're on the wrong side of history, unfortunately. My name is Sara. I'm an Egyptian-American. And I, I'm, I'm inspired to be here to stand for what is right. And what is right is to stop the genocide and to stop the ethnic cleansing. And who are you here with? I'm here with my family, my mother. I feel terrible. I can't sleep during the night. I, I can't imagine what's going on. He killed uh, kids, uh, infant, woman. That's no fair. No fault for anybody, any human being. What is your message to, to mothers in Gaza? I support her all the way. I wish was here right now. I feel sorry for her, but I can't do anything just to come here to support her. Nasser Abbasita, I'm from Gaza, Palestine, and I am here to urge everybody who is making decisions in this government to stop killing children, stop destroying the city. That's not how wars are fought. This is not how you resolve the problems. You're just making it worse. You're from Gaza. Do you have family there? Are you in touch with anyone there right now? I do. We are uh, in touch on and off as situations allow. How are they? What are they describing to you? And what does it feel like to be here as this is happening? They have been through so many wars and this is the most horrifying experience they ever had. They are just day and night bombardment behind them, above them, around them. And they are lucky to be alive. That's how they look at it. Where in Gaza is your family? Well, it depends what day you're asking. They moved four times so far from one place to the other. My name is Jeff Walker. I think it's important for us to be here today because we see oppression happening all over the place. You know, and I think like if we allow oppression to continue to happen without saying nothing, then it's going to continue to exacerbate. And why is it important to bring your kids here today? Why, why you want them to be here today? I always tell them to be on the right side of history, you know? And absolutely, and because the things that's happening in Palestine um, are the things that we've also been subjected to, you know, in our time in America here as well. And so I tell my kids to understand what's going on in this in this country and let them know that, uh, uh, give them a quote that Malcolm X said, you know, uh, uh, the media will have you praising the oppressor and shaming the oppressed. Um, and so I just want my kids to be mindful of, you know, how Palestinians stood up for us and spoke about Black Lives Matter, that we also got to speak up for them as well. 
What's your name? Where are you from? And what inspired you to be here with, with your children, with your family? I'm Rajat. My name is Rajat Diaz. I'm Palestinian. This is Suheila. She's just turned one. And we just had a beautiful birthday party for her. Right after everything happened, I was going to cancel because of what's happening in Gaza. But then I looked at the children there and I said, for children's sake, I'm going to have something for her and other children to enjoy. Because they, what crime do they have? They don't know what's happening. And I'm here with my Palestinian children to give a voice for the Palestinians that are there back home that have no voice and are being killed by this brutal occupation and genocide that the U.S. We live here and our tax dollars are supporting this. And this is a big problem, a big issue, and we want this to end as soon as possible. We don't want no money for Israel. They're committing war crime after war crime and nothing is being done. It's ridiculous. No other place in the world gets this impunity. No other place. What's your message to mothers in Gaza that have lost their children and have lost sometimes multiple of their family members? It's absolutely horrific. You know, me and my mom, we watch these videos and we just cry and cry and cry. But we're going to tell them, be strong and keep, mo keep moving forward because we're not going to stop fighting for you. They killed that kids. They don't have guns. They don't do any crime. Why? Why? I ask why then? This is the blood in your hand. You killed the kids. Why? This is what they do for you, these kids. Oh, my God. What are you holding? What's your name? My name is Nawal Khalil. I am here because to support Gaza, they killed babies. President, he is given more time, long time to kill more. A suburb of, of Philadelphia. So we drove down. These are my kids and my nieces and nephews. Um, my parents lived through the 1948 wars and were displaced um, and had were in the occupied territories since 19, until 1973, until they left with five kids, me being the youngest to the U.S., just to provide us with a better life. So seeing all of this unfold and um, listening to my parents' stories feels like a repetition of what happened in 1948. Um, and to somebody in our family that is a personal experience for all of us. Even though I grew up in the United States, you know, we live it through our parents and our parents' stories, and it feels like it's 100-fold now. You know, it was very traumatic for them what they went through. They lived in caves, they lived under trees until they made their way to the West Bank. Their, their town, my father's village, was completely annihilated. Nothing's left. When I went to visit, the one time I went to visit, visit in the mid-90s, I went with my dad, and I'll never forget him standing on the side of his village, what used to be his village, that's overcome with all just bush and overgrown in a small cannon, and how my dad looked looking out into the land, which he never went back to for 22 years. My name is Mahmoud. I'm a physician in Boston. Come here in solidarity with the Palestinian people who are going through a genocide right now. As a healthcare worker, we stand with our healthcare colleagues in, in Gaza right now, who are under indescribable circumstances to do their jobs. 
and right now the, the situation is, is, is beyond belief right now. They're doing surgeries without anesthesia, they're doing surgeries without electricity or without water. It's, it's just something no doctor should ever, you know, be quiet about. Yeah, I'm carrying this poster in, sol in solidarity of, of the healthcare workers in Gaza. Some of the people who passed away over there are, co are colleagues of us, physicians. Some of them were uh, uh, faculty at the, at the medical school over there. The previous dean of the, med only, the uh, only medical school in Gaza has killed in an, an Israeli strike. So the, the least we could do is, is you know, to let the people their names and show their pictures and let them know, you know, that they're not numbers. And they die trying to do what they, what they took an oath to do, is to save a human life. Just some of the voices of the tens of thousands of people, some say 100,000 organizers, 300,000, who came to Washington, D.C. from around the country Saturday to join the largest pro-Palestinian demonstration in U.S. history. Before the march to the White House, speakers addressed a rally in a packed Freedom Plaza, which they dubbed Gaza Plaza. We begin with Noura Arakat, Palestinian human rights attorney, associate professor at Rutgers University. We are all here to charge this administration with genocide. Israel and the United States are jointly complicit in the ongoing Nakba in Palestine. Together, they are rending international law worthless and irrelevant. Every single tribunal, from Nuremberg to Rwanda, from Bosnia to Cambodia, every prosecution at the ICC was meant to atone for our moral failures, to protect us from ourselves, and today we fail to stop. Today we fail to stop the skies from crashing down in white phosphorus flames onto Palestinian dreams, memories, potential, onto Palestinian babies, not old enough to beseech you to have mercy upon them. We are here now with them and for them to demand a ceasefire. We are here because Palestine reveals the naked hypocrisy of Western universalism. It reveals our enduring colonial reality, and it offers a glimpse into a future without colonialism. Palestine, Palestine, where a valiant people have always existed, where survivors and fighters continue to affirm that they belong to a land upon which there is a life worth living. We, we are like olive trees, like the ones that our ancestors planted. We are unshaken. We are unmoved. We are undeniable. Stand with us in this promise. We promise, Palestine still promises, that we will all be free. Free, free Palestine. Macklemore on deck. Peace, everybody.
You know, first and foremost, this is absolutely beautiful to observe today. I didn't expect to be on a microphone, but there are thousands of people here that are more qualified to speak on the issue of a free Palestine than myself. But I will say this. They told me to be quiet. They told me to do my research, to go back, that it's too complex to say something, right? To be silent in this moment. In the last three weeks, I've gone back and I've done some research and I'm teachable. I don't know enough, but I know enough that this is a genocide. And we are scared. We are watching it unfold. We have been taught to just be complicit, to protect our careers, to protect our interests, and I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not afraid to speak the truth. You know, my daughter, my daughter said to me this morning, she said, she's eight years old. She said, Dad, when we protest today, when we march today, how are the people in Palestine going to know that we're showing up? Look at this. Look at this. The world is watching what we do right now in this moment of injustice. There is no side in humanity. We lead with our hearts, we speak the truth, we shut down the propaganda, and we march forward. Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Free, free Palestine! Thank you. The very courageous comrades of the Palestinian Feminist Collective. Over 10,000 Palestinians have been martyred, and 70% of those killed in this genocide thus far are women and children. Today in Gaza, there are half a million displaced Palestinian women and girls. 50,000 pregnant women are waiting to give birth with 5,500 expected to deliver next month without water, without food, without fuel, without life-saving medicine or medical equipment. Shame. Shame! Women have resorted to taking birth control pills to stop their menstrual cycles because of a lack of sanitary pads. Shame! This targeting of indigenous women's bodies and sexualities is woven into the genocidal fabric of Israeli settler colonialism. But our love and care for each other, our insistence to live, our persistence to give birth to the next generation of Palestinians on our homeland, to hold ground amidst the most unlivable conditions is a testament to the fact that we refuse to die quietly. We refuse the terms of our vanishment. We are a people who teach life and keep creating life in spite of genocide through our revolutionary love. 
to feel this love deeply is to know that we have already won. Next up, we have Brother Nihad Awad from the Council on American-Islamic Relations. From the beginning of the bombardment of Gaza, we spoke to President Biden the language of logic, the language of law, the language of humanity. We appeal to him to take a moral position to recognize 2.3 million civilian residents trapped in Gaza under the attack of the Israeli forces from every imaginable type of modern weaponry to call him to call for a ceasefire. All these calls and the calls from the world community fell on deaf ears. Shame, 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 shame. As the images of the genocide increased, he dehumanized the Palestinians and dismissed their suffering. He denied, he denied the dead Palestinians the right to be acknowledged as dead. Shame, shame, shame. He insisted that should be, there should be no ceasefire. The State Department asked their staff not to talk about this de-escalation. We, we have discovered the language that President Biden understands, and let me share it with you. The language that President Biden and his party understand is the language of votes in 2024 elections. And our message is no ceasefire, no votes. 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 No votes in Michigan. No votes in Arizona. No votes in Georgia. No votes in Nevada. No votes in Wisconsin. No votes in Pennsylvania. No votes in Ohio. No votes for you anywhere if you do not call for a ceasefire now. After hearing, after hearing this message in the past week and a half, and the fact that 60%, 66% of Americans support a ceasefire, the President, the Secretary of State, Democratic Senators and Representatives started to change their tone. We will make our voices heard more and more. In November, we remember. 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 A White House official told a friend of mine that the community has a short memory. A few months, then they will forget. And let me tell them, 
let me tell them, in November, we remember. In November, we remember. In November, we remember. Next up, we have Mohammed El Kurd. I want us to take a few minutes to consider the magnitude of loss of life currently happening in the Gaza Strip. I want us to consider what it means to lose 10,000 people, for 10,000 people to be killed by Israeli warplanes. Consider their families and their grief. Consider their lovers. Consider the people missing them. Consider our martyrs' lives, their grievances, their hobbies, and most of all, most of all, I want you to consider the fear, the fear that they must have felt as warplanes dropped over their heads, the fear they must have felt minutes before they were killed. And I want you to compare that fear, I want you to measure that fear against your own fear. It does not compare. I, I understand it. We're all afraid of losing a job, of losing a friend, of being ostracized, of being shamed. I called my father earlier. I told him I was coming to this march. He said, stay away from the cameras. We're all afraid. But this fear does not compare. They want us to think that we are paying personal prices, but we have our community. They want us to think that we are alone, but we have our people supporting us. If they come for you, if they come for you, if they take your job, if they fire you from school, if they expel you, do not think of yourself as a casualty. You are not a casualty. You are fuel for the movement. You are part of the struggle. They want us to be silent, but we know silence will not protect us. Fear and silence will do nothing but allow this carnage to go on unchecked. Silence is a sign of consent in the empire. Are we afraid? Are we afraid? No. Are we afraid? No. Voices from Saturday's massive rally in Washington, D.C., calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, the largest pro-Palestinian march in U.S. history. Special thanks to Democracy Now! producers Hani Massoud, Messiah Rhodes, and Maria Teresena. When we come back, we go to Gaza to hear from the poet Ahmed Abu Artima, who inspired the great march of return. Last month, he lost five members of his family. He speaks from his hospital bed. Back in 20 seconds. Rise with spirit to guide us. Rise in hope, in prayer, we here in hope, in prayer, we're right here in hope, in prayer, we, we rise by Bacha Levine. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. Shortly before today's show, Democracy Now! reached the Palestinian poet 
<coughs> journalist and peace activist Ahmed Abu Atima, who lost five members of his family last month when they were killed by an Israeli airstrike. He survived the blast but was seriously injured. The dead include his 12-year-old son. Artima helped inspire the Great March of Return, a series of weekly nonviolent protests in Gaza that began in 2018. Israel responded to the protests by killing over 200 protesters, including 46 children. Artema recently wrote an article for the Electronic Antifada headlined, Why Did Israel Kill My Son? He sent us this audio message from his hospital bed. On the morning of uh, October 24th, I was sitting with my children in the uh, living room of the house of my family. It's a house of three floors. There were about 40 members in the house at that moment. Suddenly I became unconscious. Maybe after a few uh, minutes, I uh, wake up again. I saw dust and rubble surrounding me everywhere. I knew at that moment that uh, the house where I was with my children was bombing. My uh, hearing at that time uh, was gone. I didn't uh, hear anything, but I looked around me. I looked around me. I saw my uh, two children, Hamoud and uh, Batul, screaming and uh, sticking uh, to me and pointing to uh, my other child, my oldest child, Abud, uh, their uh, brother. And uh, they, they are shouting, Abud was relying on the floor. Uh, the people came and uh, took us uh, from the rubble. And we went to the hospital by ambulance. I knew that uh, my uh, four four ladies at that uh, place, my uh, two aunts and my uh, father's wife and uh, my cousin were killed at the same time, at the first uh, time of the bombing. My child, Abud, uh, and my niece, Jude, she's uh, about 10 years old also. Uh, they were in uh, uh, critical condition. A day after, uh, they were killed. The uh, majority of the family, the most of them were injured. This is what happened. What happened with me, and uh, this is an example of the daily Israeli bombing. Uh, against Gaza. Israel is claiming and is saying that it's a war against Hamas. But where is Hamas? Take my house as example. Four uh, women and two children were killed in this Israeli strike. And this is what's happening every day. Thousands, the vast majority of the victims of this Israeli war until now are uh, innocent women and men and children, complete families. Israel is targeting the families. Israel declared it clearly that its problem is with the, with the Palestinians themselves, not with a faction or with a group. 
the Israeli problem is the Palestinian existence itself. So it's not by mistake. Israel didn't uh, bombard my uh, house, didn't kill my child by mistake. It's the Israeli strategy. It's the Israeli mindset of genocide against the Palestinians. Israel uh, look at us as nothing. We are nothing. We are human animals. So, uh, in, in their perspective, so they don't care to remove uh, all the Palestinian cities, to kill all the Palestinians. The most horrible that the world is still allowing for this Israeli genocide to happen. This is the horrible thing. Israel is uh, uh, supported completely by the United States administration. The missile that killed my son Abud and the missiles that killed uh, thousands of the Palestinians are U.S. made. Uh, uh, so we are subjected to genocide. This is the most important message. Palestinian poet Ahmed Abu Artima, who inspired the Great March of Return protest years ago. Last month, he lost five members of his family just a week or two ago, including his son in an Israeli airstrike. He was injured in the strike, recorded this message from his hospital bed. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. The Gaza Health Ministry's announced Palestinian death toll in Gaza has now exceeded 10,000 from Israel's month-long bombardment. On Friday, at least 15 people died when an Israeli airstrike hit a convoy of ambulances outside Gaza's largest hospital. We're ending the show with Dr. Alice Rothschild, retired OBGYN who's long worked in Palestine, was last in Gaza in August. On Friday, Dr. Rothschild participated in a nonviolent protest to shut down the federal building in Seattle, where Democratic Senator Patty Murray of Washington has an office, urging the senator to call for an immediate ceasefire. Dr. Rothschild is on the steering committee of Jewish Voice for Peace Health Advisory Council and mentor liaison for We Are Not Numbers on the board of Gaza Mental Health Foundation. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Dr. Rothschild. If you can talk about the attacks on hospitals right now, uh, you have the attack on the ambulance convoy. Israel said it's because they were transporting Hamas fighters. You have the attack on the hospitals, like al-Shifa, the largest. Israel says it's because command and control is underneath. Can you comment on all of this and the number, the death toll at this point? Well, this is an appalling situation in terms of the death toll. And there are multiple international laws, starting with the Geneva Accords, that are being violated. You are not allowed under any circumstances to bomb hospitals, to bomb health centers, to bomb ambulances. This is against international law. Uh, Israel has, uh, Israeli military has for years, with multiple different attacks, accused health facilities of sheltering, quote, terrorists. They have never produced uh, good documentation. And even if there were, for instance, tunnels under a hospital, you are still not allowed to bomb a hospital. So this is a grave violation of international law and also part of the uh, situation where civilians are dying in massive numbers and being injured in massive numbers.
Can you comment on the level of protests that you're seeing right now and the amount of suffering that you're seeing right now in Gaza? You have these 18 groups um, rarely issuing a joint statement, NGOs, along with U.N. agencies, demanding a ceasefire and what this would mean. And what Senator Murray has said to you as a representative of Jewish Voice for Peace um, and the Gaza Mental Health Foundation as you shut down the federal building in Seattle. Well, I think that I've been doing this for uh, solidarity work for 25 years, and this kind of response is unprecedented. And I think it's a reflection of the unprecedented nature of the Israeli attack. And Senator Murray has not been willing to call for a ceasefire, but people all over this country and all over the planet are calling for a ceasefire because we must uh, stop this bombing and we must stop all of the civilian death. It is clear that the Israeli military is not doing uh, an, a war to destroy Hamas, whatever that means. It is a, a war to destroy Gaza and destroying the infrastructure and killing thousands of people. You know, over half the homes are destroyed. A third of the hospitals are destroyed. It's just a massive, massive uh, catastrophe for this region. And there there is thought that this is all part of an Israeli plan to uh, run Gazans out of Gaza and displace them into Egypt. There are all sorts of horrific ideas going around. Uh, so the uh, response to this is all being seen internationally. And can you talk about the health situation? We just came out of uh, the third total blackout of uh, Gaza, um, with um, health organizations, human rights groups begging the Israeli government to turn back on the electricity, the cellular service, uh, because of what it means for people, organizations that are trying to coordinate um, their surviving workers on the ground to help the Palestinians. Well, the health system is catastrophic. It has collapsed. And if you think about it, what it means not to have electricity, you cannot call an ambulance. You're in labor. You cannot communicate with anyone. Hospitals can't communicate with each other. Uh, they can't uh, pump water into the system. There is no, uh, almost no water at all that's clean. Uh, that means you can't wash your sterile instruments. You can't wash wounds. There's a lack of antibiotics. People are dying of infection. I mean, it goes on and on and on if you think about not having water, not having electricity, and also not having food. There's now a serious risk of starvation. Uh, the average Gazan is living on two pieces of bread a day and spending hours searching for water, and people are starting to drink agricultural water. So we're seeing um, an uptick in diarrheal diseases, respiratory infections, chickenpox. You know, this is a, a, a humanitarian and health catastrophe that is basically being live-streamed in front of our eyes. And the position of the Biden administration, we just have 30 seconds at this point. Uh, the position of the Biden administration is entirely inadequate and utterly outrageous. Biden needs to call for a ceasefire. The U.S. is sending, uh, planning to send Israel more weapons that will only create more havoc. So Israel should not be getting weapons. And Biden must, must, must call for a total ceasefire. That is absolutely necessary from a humanitarian healthcare, political, human, and moral point of view. Dr. Alice Rothschild, we thank you for being with us. We'll continue our conversation post online at democracynow.org. Retired OBGYN, who has long worked in Palestine, was in Gaza in August on the Steering Committee of Jewish Voice for Peace Health Advisory Council.